We've got some more worship in a little while, don't we? That was powerful, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, we've been doing a thing with the group, and uh, I think you've already caught on to it. Good morning. Yeah, you're ready. You're ready. I don't have to get you ready. Uh, uh, you're ready. Uh, my name is Ryan Wood. I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, the phrase I just thought of this morning when I thought about your church is, the future is bright. The future is bright. It really is. It's a, it's a bright future for this place. Um, Ridge is, I think when God created the heart of a pastor, it would probably look a lot like Ridge over here. A Pastor Ridge. He's, yeah, I, I mean, he's got the heart of a pastor. He's focused, he's patient, and he's got a mission. He's an he's a agent of change, and that's what he does, and I, I'm just, I just love watching him work, and I've enjoyed my time. The, the, the future is bright because he's got a good team. I mean, he, God has just brought this church an incredible team. Uh, Casey is uh, discipling the kiddos, and you know, she doesn't just do child care. You know that, right? She's, she's discipling children. And um, she's teaching them the, the value of salvation, and uh, she's doing an incredible job. I went back there and saw the, the area back there, and she's just getting after it. And Jeff has clearly done something. I think three years ago, there was eight students wearing T-shirts, and so uh, now he's got quite the group. And uh, yeah, amen. Yeah, yeah, he's doing a great job. And I'm glad to call him friend. And uh, uh, beyond that, the, uh, Braden is doing an incredible job too. You know, I've, I, commission is something that uh, we've talked. I, I know you are partnered with us in commission. It's something that uh, we prayed over for a long time, and it's actually happening now. We've got we're reaching over six or seven campuses right now, and I think we'll have three in the next few years. And yeah, praise God. And and. It's awesome how God does things. Sometimes when, you, when a, a great leader steps out of the way, a Moses steps out of the way, God brings in a powerful Joshua, doesn't he? And Braden has stepped in here, and Caroline have stepped in here, and they're taking this thing to the next level and really reaching the nations up at UMHB. So uh, the, the future is bright for this church, isn't it? It's, it's so bright because the staff is focused and they are lean and mean. I'm just telling you, they're fun to watch. But hey, the future is really bright. You can look over here, and I think you saw the energy and the excitement. But I'll tell you what, this youth group, this, youth, this group of students isn't just an exciting group of people that, that is like a flood. I mean, they learned this weekend about excitement, and they learned about discipline. And when you put those two things together, they can impact their generation and They'll carry the, the torch into the next generation for Jesus Christ. So the future is bright, isn't it? I, can, I can't say that enough. And um, thank you. You are a blessing this weekend to me. Thank you. I had so much fun, and uh, you, you taught me a lot. I listened to you. I heard what you said. Um, I even learned some new words that I didn't even know, okay? Um, uh, but uh, you blessed me, and I appreciate you, and I'm so thankful that you had me here this weekend. So, hey, you ready to get going? Let's get going. I know, I know we need to get going. Luke chapter 10, we're going to be in two places. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. If you brought your Bibles, if you turn to the middle and go to the right a little ways, you'll hit Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. 
Hey, and there's no shame in using the table of contents in the front of your Bible. That's what it's there for. Once you get to Luke chapter 10, put your finger there or put a pen in there or a piece of paper and jump over to John chapter 13. We're going to be in a few spots. We'll start in John chapter 13 and we'll come back to Luke. I don't know if your families or your... uh, your household is into games like board games or card games, but uh, at some point or another, each and every one of us have probably played some kind of game, right? Like we've, we've either played Go Fish or we've played Pictionary or we've played uh, uh, Candyland, whatever it may be. When you play a game, there's all kinds of different players. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's only so many types of players when it comes to to board games or card games, right? What's the first one? The first person is the rule keeper, right? They keep the rules close. They know, they say, whoa, 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 you can't do that. It's it's right here in the rules. And they even know like the the gray area where there could be discretion. They say, no, I've I've got the extra set of rules and I know that that's not legal. You must Remove your turn and uh, move back two spots. You know that person. Maybe you're even, amen, there you go. You know who you are, and I kind of happen to fall in that category sometimes. I'm so familiar with that because I kind of fall in that. Sometimes, you, you ever been playing a game and there's the person that's playing the game with you, but it, when it's their turn, they never seem to be at the table? <laughs> Have you ever met that? I mean, it seems like every Christmas when we're playing a big game of, of, of dominoes, it's like there's always someone, it's their turn, and we have to remind them, it's your turn again, and they're in the kitchen eating something, right? Or they're saying, oh, I was in the bathroom, and it's like, oh, I ran to the convenience store. We're in the middle of a game right now. You know what I mean? There's persons that never are there for their turn. And then there's people that change the rules, right? They say, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, the rules got thrown away. You know, you have the old games where the rules got thrown away years ago, and they make up their own. We've been playing house rules for years. We've been, they're house rules, man. I, I didn't make them. This is just how it goes, house rules. And you're like, how come the rules keep changing every time that they lose? Um, we all have our different places where we play a game. My daughter Olivia is seven years old, and the first game I ever played with her was a game called Candyland. You've probably heard of it before. It's not that complex. There's very few rules. Um, but you don't have to teach a seven-year-old how to win, okay? You don't have to teach them how to win a game. And so we're playing the game. I am explaining the rules, my son Charlie is the one that's four, and he's never there for his turn. So we have a rogue piece in the middle of the board. But my daughter Olivia is smart. As we begin to play, she starts to pick up, oh, I'm behind. <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not, I got to catch up some way. So she says, oh, no, no, no. Actually, on this turn, I get two rolls of the dice. <laughs> and I said, oh, is that how it goes? Yeah, she said, that's house rules. That's how we play it. And I said, okay. And she said, yeah, I get two turns to your one turn. And inevitably, she finds a way to win every time. And I, I respect that. She's hungry to win. But there's just some people who change the rules in the game. John chapter 13. You got, you got it? If you got John chapter 13, say got it. Here we go. Verse 34. 
What's it say? Verse 34, if you've got your pen or you're taking notes, there's some really important pieces here. It says, a new command I will give you. Underline new command. Love one another. We've heard this before. Love one another. As I have loved you, underline that. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Jesus uh, came to fulfill the law, clearly. That's what he came to do. He came to live a perfect, righteous life before us so that he would be an adequate sacrifice for our sins, right? But not only did Jesus come to uh, fulfill the law, he fulfilled it and more. Jesus was sitting with his disciples at the, at the Last Supper there, and he had just washed their feet. And they're looking at him thinking, what king washes their, their servants' feet? And he sits with them, and he says, a new command I give you. Jesus changed the game. He changed the rules of the game. He's the only person that could really issue a new command, right? He's really the only one that could issue this new command. Because not only did he fulfill the law, he exceeded it. He exceeded it. He is holy, perfect, and righteous. He didn't just love. He loved in a way that no one had ever seen before. So what does he say? Love as I have loved you. He changed the rules of the game. What was the rule before? The command was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. That's the first part. But then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the first rule. Jesus said, okay, I got a better picture for you. You want to see what love looks like? Don't use yourself as the barometer. Use me. I just washed your feet. Those that will be first will be last. You want to see what love looks like? Watch what I'm about to do in the next coming days because I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to sacrifice it all so that you can know the God of the universe. He changed the game. He changed the rules of the game. Truth is, when Christ says, love as I have loved you, it's a higher calling. It's really a higher calling. We know that that's impossible to attain. We can't attain Christ, but in His grace, He gives us the measures to keep going after it, to keep striving for that. So here is the question that we want to answer today is, how will the people within one mile of this church experience the love of Christ? How will they experience? I am fully convinced after our little time together worshiping just now uh, of a few things. First of all, I drove around your neighborhoods yesterday. Listen, it's coming, guys. (laughs) It's coming back here. I mean, you're not surrounded yet, but you will be soon. It's coming. Belton Temple is coming to Memorial. Amen? It's coming. Now, here's what I think. I think you're the best kept secret. I think you're the best kept secret uh, uh, down here off this, this little road over here. I think you're the best kept secret because there are, I counted on Google Maps, and I'm a nerd like this. I think I counted over 2,000 plus houses within a mile of this place. I don't know, you could do the math, and I'm not very good at it. Some of you engineers can do that, but uh, you, you put two and a half people per house times 2,000. That's a few people, and they're coming. They're coming. What I also know is you're hungry. You're a hungry group. 
you love the Lord. And so what's it going to take? What are the two things it's going to take to, uh, uh, to reach them, to, to be the people that change the game? And don't, don't say, uh, uh, love, uh, love them like you love yourself. He says, love them like I have loved you. So what's it going to take? You got Luke chapter 10? You got Luke chapter 10? All right. I don't want to lose you here. We're going to run quick. Are you with me? Let's go. Okay, Luke chapter 10. We're in verse 25, okay? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is a story that some of you will be familiar with. And if you've never heard it before, this is an incredible story uh, that I think will, will be, uh, that'll change, change you a little bit. It says in verse 25, on one occasion, the expert of the law, you can underline that expert in the law, stood up to, the test, to test Jesus. Jesus, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. That's a really good question. <laughs> especially to ask Jesus. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is before Jesus issued the new command. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, underlying this, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. That word justify is really important. He wanted to justify himself. Lawyers, attorneys, justify, right? They want to be justified. So he asked Jesus, so who is my neighbor? What is going on in this exchange? First of all, we got to look. The man was a lawyer. He was an attorney. This is what he did for a living. He argued right and he argued wrong. If you're an attorney in the room and that's what you do, it's a noble cause. That's what this guy was doing. He's saying what is right and what is wrong. How do I do this right? He knew the law very well. There's nothing wrong with the law. The first part when he answers... Jesus' question, Jesus says, well, how do you read it? The first thing he says is the Jewish Shema. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, I know this one. This one's easy, man. This was, this was year one law school, man. This was when I was a kid memorizing the Torah. I know this like it's the back of my hand. It's the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God. It's so easy. That's, that's 100%, right? And he says the second command is what we call the great command, or what they would have called the great command. He says, I know this one too. Law 201, man. Love the Lord your God first, and now love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, boom. Is that, what, is that it? Is that what you wanted? The lawyer was pretty confident, if you notice, in the story. He was confident in the first one. He didn't ask Jesus about his love for God. He asked, Jesus, a simple question. What do you ask him? Who is my neighbor? It leads me to believe he was pretty confident in his love for God, right? He had built a life uh, set on the laws that he had obviously done well keeping. You know what? When we set up rules in our lives, uh, and uh, we usually set them up, and, and it's not terribly difficult to live up to them. And this man had obviously felt like he had lived up to the set of rules that he had in his life. And uh, he set up systems where he could follow those. 
But he wanted to be justified on the second one. If you're a good attorney, it would be good to be justified. Justification is important. If you're trying a case, you understand that circumstantial evidence will not get the job done most of the time. You've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this thing that you are proposing is true. And so he's saying, you know, it's kind of hard to prove that I love God, but you said love your neighbor as yourself. So can we get down in the weeds here? I need to be justified. Who's my neighbor? That's an important question. You say, well, I would never ask this, but why is he asking this? In ancient J- Jewish literature that any one of these guys would have known, in the Sirach, uh, which many devout Jews would have read, uh, you would be familiar to see that there's a few things that it calls us to do when it comes to our neighbor. You know you got lots of neighbors here, right? you got lots of neighbors here. Look around, just go out after church and do a 360, and man, they're everywhere. And they're going up in every direction. you got lots of neighbors. But the, the, the lawyer knew that in all ancient Jewish literature it said, for your neighbors, man, you do good to the devout. That's what it called them to do. Do good to the devout. But it also, on the flip side, said something like this. But do not help the sinner. <laughs> well, that's convenient. That works out nice. So what was the lawyer really asking? He goes, Jesus... We're going to get down in the weeds here. Who's really my neighbor? What do you think my neighbor is, right? The lawyer was asking, don't I get to decide who my neighbors are? Don't I get to decide who I love like myself? That would be really, really nice. When our eternity is built on how well we keep the law, how well we've kept these set of standards... It's the, lens, it's the lens in which we view others. We start setting our standard as the law, and we get down into distinctions of, is it this or is it that? Is it this or is it that? And we start to view others through the lens of the law. Can I give you this first thing this morning, that Jesus is the only one that can justify Jesus is the only one that can justify what we, our current condition and anyone's current condition. He is the only one in human history, we sang about it just a second ago, that His death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that lets us stand before a holy God. Uh, I mean, I don't know how heaven's going to be, but I feel like that sound booth's kind of like God's perch. And He's going to be sitting up in, his, his, uh, his, 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 in the courtroom, and He's going to have His gavel. And I'm telling you, He'll slam it down and he'll look at each and every person and he'll say, guilty. You and I are guilty. We are separated from God. We're guilty whether we held 99% of the law or we held 1% of the law. We'll be guilty. But the beauty of Roman law was, if you, were, if, if you know anything about Roman law, someone could come in and say, you know what? This is my dad, and I know he can't go into the salt mines and work, so I know he's done a terrible thing, but I think I want to take his place and take his punishment. They would allow that from time to time. Maybe your son or your daughter made a terrible mistake, and you just wanted to cover their, uh, uh, their punishment. You could say, this kid's got a lot to live, and I think he or she could do it, but I want to take their, their, uh, their, their punishment of rowing in the gallows, man. I'll take it for them. You could do that in Roman law. In the cosmic court of eternity, before God slammed down his gavel, Jesus Christ stepped up and says, 
Dad, I'll be the one to take their punishment. We did everything we could. They're our creation. We love them so much. It'd sure be a waste to let it go now. I'll take the punishment. And God said, He's a fitting sacrifice. He's a fitting sacrifice. Only Christ can justify it. You know, each and every person that accepts Jesus Christ and the Lord carries a certificate of debt that says sin on it. Uh, short of perfect. Not good, right? And, and when Jesus died on the cross and you received Him as your Lord and Savior, it's stamped with this word, to telestai. It is finished is what that means. And all that means is you were justified. And when you're justified in Christ, you can't go back to being unjustified. Because when He, he dies for your sins, when He forgives you of sins, there's no taking you out of his hands. You can't go back. When you're justified, when the price was paid, no double jeopardy, it's over, the price is paid. Yesterday, today, and forever. Only Christ can justify. You know, the law, if you're not a believer, is kind of like a wall. It's frustrating. It frustrates you because you want to go over it and you realize you can't get over it. You want to dig under it and you realize you can't dig under it. Well, maybe you can go around to a side door. There's no side door. The law is like this wall that God builds and it's just so frustrating because you want to peek over and you want to get over it and you just try so hard. But the good news of God is that He made a door. All of us try to climb over it, and we build these cool ladders or these great digging devices, or we try to bore through the wall, and God says, I've got a door. Anyone that wants to come after me, go through the door. Once you go through the door, the law becomes a wall at your back. What's it do? It propels you. It's good for you. It teaches you character. It grows you into someone powerful and as a world changer, right? This was the problem Jesus had with the Pharisees and the attorneys of the time. Pharisees apply grace to themselves, but the law to everyone else. Jesus says, apply to the law, law to yourself. It's good for your growth. If it's, a, if, it's a, if it's in front of you, it'll be frustrating. And it'll teach you that you're going to have to go through me to get in the, it through the wall. And if it's behind you and you're a Christ follower, it will show you how to be protected, blessed, and to have a prosperous life. It'll propel you, won't it? Isn't that true? It'll propel you. If you have Christ, the law isn't something that keeps you back. It's the law of grace. It gives you freedom, right? So what's this, what does Jesus do now? We're going to have to go quick, aren't we? We're going to have to go quick. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down, verse, verse 30, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of the robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This is the story Jesus is telling him. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins. He gave them to the innkeeper. 
Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will imburse you for an extra expense. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? I think it's a rhetorical question for all of us. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. On a 17-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, a man, presumably a Jew, is what Jesus says, is, is beaten, he's stripped, and he's robbed, and he's left for dead. It says half dead. I don't know how you're half dead. I, I mean, that's one of those things. You either are or you aren't. And uh, it says he was left for dead. I mean, he was taking his last breaths. It says a priest came by. Maybe he worked in the temple in Jerusalem and he lived in Jericho and he was just going home for the weekend. He was important though. He had people to lead. What if while he stopped, he got robbed too? That wouldn't be a good look, right? So he moved on. The Levite. He may have also worked in the temple. But you understand that a Levite must be ceremonially clean under the law. If he touches a dead man, if that guy's actually dead and I touch him... I'm out of work for seven days. I don't get a paycheck. My kids don't eat. And my wife's mad and says, get a side job, okay, buddy? Because you're going to have to bring home the bacon. You're going to have to bring home some money so we can eat, right? He passes by. He says, I'm going on. Then there's a guy who they call the Samaritan. 700 years, the Jews and the Samaritans had been bitter enemies. They didn't like each other. Like Aggies and Longhorns. They did not like each other, okay? I can't believe I didn't hear 15 whoops. That's crazy. They were enemies. They weren't friendly neighbors, guys. If you've ever had a bad neighbor, it may have been your fault. It may have been their fault, but it doesn't really matter. It just stinks. They're not good neighbors. So the question is, just like the man asked, who is my neighbor. Jesus gives him a question back. He says, which one are you? That's what he asked. Which one are you? Think about this for a second. Which one are you to your neighbors? And when you think about who your neighbor is, are you the priest? Are you too fearful to step out and to give help to your neighbor? Are you scared? Are you fearful? What if it's a trap? What if they take advantage of you? Is that the feelings you have when you think about loving your neighbor as Christ loved you? Maybe you're the Levite. Listen, it's 2020. People are busy. We work more today than we've ever worked. There's lots going on. Maybe you're busy and you have a lot of important things to do. Are you like the Levite? If I help this man, I might be late to work. I can't stop. Is that you? Are you the Samaritan? Do you go above and beyond the call of duty? Which one are you? That's what Jesus says. Which one? That's really the question he's asking. Which one are you? Jesus is teaching us a little bit about perspective that we should have when it comes to loving our neighbor as Christ loved us. I've got a different idea on this, though. What if Jesus is saying you're not the priest? What if he's saying, you're not the priest? What if he said, you're not the busy Levite? And you're not even the good Samaritan? You're not any of these. 
You've read the story all wrong. You've read it like a lawyer. Who are you in the story? What if Jesus is telling us that we're the stripped, the beaten, the left for dead guy on the side of the road in the story? What if that's what Jesus is saying? He says, you're not the good Samaritan. I'm the great Samaritan. What if Jesus was a Samaritan in the story and who having no reason to stop and help his enemy stopped and he went across the street. He put on flesh and helped us bring us back to life. What if that's what Jesus was saying? I'm the Samaritan. You're not the Samaritan. And if you want to be the priest or you want to be the Levite, you can have that and you'll get your reward here on earth. But you've got to understand, you're not the Samaritan. I'm the Samaritan. I'm the great Samaritan. What if he picked us up on his back when we didn't deserve it and took us into town? He paid our debt in full and in advance. And what if when we needed an extra night in the hotel, he said, I got them covered till the end. Let them get back on their feet. Secret of the parable. You want to know the secret of this parable? The secret of this parable for us, how do you love God as Christ loved you. To love God is to respond to Him at every level. If you're taking notes, to love God is to respond to Him at every single level. Before you can begin to be a conduit of the love of Christ to the people around you as they flock to to within a mile of your church, we must allow God to meet our own needs. You've got to praise who you are. We talked a lot about this this weekend. Passion and discipline equals power. Passion without discipline, you're a flood. Discipline without passion, you can't sustain it. You're cold. Sometimes passion looks like desperation. It's not always exciting jumping up and down and clapping your hands and singing a loud song. Sometimes passion is is desperation saying, God, I'm out of money. I don't know what else to do. I'm at the end here. I've done everything I can to mend this relationship, and I'm at the end of me. I'm beaten. I'm left for dead. No one will help me. That's the condition that each and every one of us have. And you have experienced that, I know, in many different ways. Whether it be through a relationship, maybe your marriage, you're sitting there saying, Ryan, that's us. We're putting on a good face for everybody, but my marriage is at the end. God, I need you. I need you to intervene because I want you to win here. Desperation is passion. Before these people around you could know, who he is and see his love, they've got to see a desperation and a passion from the people of his church, of his body. Passion comes in the form of desperation sometimes, doesn't it? Passion comes in the form of desperation. When we were enemies of Christ, I felt like finding Nemo right there, seeing him in the knee. When we were enemies of Christ, He stopped. When we were hurt, He healed our wounds. When we didn't have time for Him, He made time for us. 
I'm going to run these quick because we're out of time. But there's four things that now we see when you have the passion, when you have the passion, when you step over the line and you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm someone separated from you. It's no mystery. I know I've been separated from you. I'm the broken down, beaten, stripped, left for dead person. I'm on the brink. I am on the brink and I need help. Once you start letting God save you, once you have that passion going, then he says you're going to have to have some discipline, right? Passion plus discipline equals what, students? Power, right? You can do something. You can be the light. You can, you can reach this community. You can show them the love of Christ because you've experienced the love of Christ. So he says there's four things. In 1033, if you're underlining, it says the Samaritan first came where the man was. Underline that. That's so important. Christ saw himself as a guest, not a host. This is the discipline part. You can be all excited. You can sing your songs in here. And you can lift your voices and fill this with praise. But what will leak out into those, those streets, into the, this neighborhood, into that neighborhood, is love. That's what will leak out. That's what will open the doors. That's what will bust down the doors and bring this place down. I'm just telling you. Passion plus discipline. The first one is what we learn that Christ does is he took the first step. We've got got to learn to take the first step. Christ saw himself as a host, not a guest. Hosts go out of their way to connect with people and provide for them. That's what hosts do. But I don't have the gift of hospitality. You're a host, not a guest. He came where the man was. He went out of his way. You see, he initiated the confrontation with the man. That's what the Spirit does. You think you can come to God on your own terms? That's not how it works. No one comes to the Father except the Spirit draws him. You think you can wait till next week or next month or when you get older or when you're about the, the last breath you take. You don't get to pick the time you get saved. You don't get to pick when God initiates the contact with you. You don't get that right. God gets that right. Jesus Christ gets that right. No one comes to the Father except the Spirit draws him. Jesus initiated. He took the first step. It literally means to make a start. If you can think about this, it's to create a starting line. If you want to be the church for these people around here, you've got to make a starting line in relationships. You can do it with anyone in here. Initiative. Make a starting line in the relationship. you just got to get the start going. To love like Christ, here's the word, initiative. Take the first step. In a world where most people passively expect others to start the conversation, we initiate. That's what we do. This is where the power is. This is where the power happens. You got passion and you see yourself as Christ sees you as as needing help. He can lift you up and he can set you free. But now you got to have discipline. You got to take the first step with people. Number two. Ooh, we got to go quick. It says, he went to him. There was little common ground between the Jew and the Samaritan. There wasn't really anything to connect about. 
Jesus stepped down off of his throne, took all the steps to our side. He built a bridge and made himself uncomfortable for us. Isn't that powerful? Aren't you thankful that he did that? He took all the way from heaven and came all the way down here. He didn't say, meet me in the middle. I'll see you in the middle. I'll start walking your way. You start walking mine. We'll meet in the... We want to sing the song? I mean, or you want me to stop? I mean... That's not what he did. He said, no, I'll come all the way down. I'll build the bridge. In fact, I am the bridge. I am the bridge. Second principle, he went to him. It says, build a bridge. Join together. That's what a bridge does. It joins together. Take steps away from your comfort towards common ground with others in your life. Who's your neighbor? I don't know who you come across. Who do you come across? Who are you with in the rhythms of your life? Make a start. Draw a starting line and then go over to their side. But we don't like the same things. The problem with most of us is that when we start a conversation, when we start a relationship, what you have to do is tell everybody what you disagree about first before you can start agreeing. That's not building a bridge. Christ didn't come down and say, listen, I disagree with all of you. I need you to know it's going to be bad. No, he says, man, I made you in my image. He built a bridge. We've got to learn to build a bridge. Are you focused on similarities in, co- in conversations? Or are you just so excited to rip someone to pieces when you have a difference with them? Kind of fun in your 20s to argue. In your 30s, people just stop talking to you. In your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, if you're angry and you've got to talk about differences all the time and you've got to be bitter and uh, uh, make sure everybody knows what you believe and what, you, what, you, what, you, what your dogmatic ideas are, then you just end up alone. But it doesn't have to be that way. Start with similarities. Build a bridge. Find common ground. That's what Christ did. What's the third one? You with me? That one hurt. Let's, let's go on. 1034, he went to him and bandaged his wounds. Praise God. Pouring on oil and wine. To love like Christ, we must add value to others. Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are hit, healed. He added value at his expense. Isn't that what the Samaritan did? took out his oil, took out his wine, and said, I wasn't planning on using these to clean this guy up, but at my expense, I'll clean him up. We've got to learn how to do that too, to love like Christ, right? You can pick your neighbors, but if you want power, passion, discipline, power. Add values to others. Think more about others than you think about your own needs. But that'll take faith. I know. That's what Jesus wants, is faith. Because you know what he can do with faith? Immeasurably more than you could even think or imagine. You think your finances are tight? Have faith. He might do immeasurably more than you can think or imagine if you stop thinking about yourself and start thinking of others. But I don't have enough money to pay for this guy's busted tire. Have faith. That's what he says. That's going to cause faith because if I do that, I may not be able to buy this. Have faith. See what happens. Yeah. 
Are you, are you willing to leverage your resources, your time, talents, and money to invest into others? These students are ready to be invested in. Five new believers. Some of you need to pick them up under their wings and you say, well, they don't, I don't know them. Or maybe I'm too old or maybe I'm not old enough or maybe I don't know enough. No, you've got five new believers. Invest some time. Teach them what it looks like to be a faithful disciple to the very end. Some of you are trailblazers. It'd be a sure shame if at the end nobody knew what you knew. Impart it. Give it away. Pass it on to some students. Last but not least, let's finish it up. Then he put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The long journey back to Jerusalem could have been up to 17 miles. It meant that the broken man had to ride the donkey. And what did the Samaritan have to do? He's walking, baby. He's walking, baby. And the Samaritan walked. Jesus would take a similar walk for us. He did it with a cross on his back. He took a similar walk for you and I. The Samaritan put the broken man on his donkey. He didn't say, man, I know you're in bad shape. Here's some oil. Here's some wine. I hope you get this figured out, but I got to go. Who's my neighbor? He put him on his donkey. He said, this is going to take a week of my time. Who's my neighbor? Jesus didn't do the bare minimum. Thank God. He did not do the bare minimum that was required to make himself feel justified. He put the cross on his back and he said, God, if they're worth it, I think they're worth it. If you think they're worth it, I think they're worth it. I'll put this cross on my back and they're going to nail me to it. I know this is going to hurt. If there's another way, I'd sure like to hear about it now, God. You got another plan? And he says, nope, the cup is yours. So he put it on his back, the cross that you and I were supposed to carry. And he said, I'll carry it. Jump on my donkey. I'll carry it. Love as Christ has loved us. It's a new command. I'll tell you what. It's coming. You got passion. But do you have the discipline? Are you willing to be a host and not a guest? There's room in the house. Look around you. To your left and your right. There's room. There's room for them. There's a seat at the table for them. They're coming, aren't they, Ridge? They're coming. But what God wants you to do now is to take the passion you have in here that I saw so powerfully and couple it with the discipline of learning how to be a host. And then the doors blow off of this place. Can't keep people out. Let's pray. God, we love you. We know you're present here this morning because we've got an expectant heart. And so we ask in this moment that uh, we wouldn't let this moment go, that we would be grateful, thankful, and responsive because the Christ stopped and helped us out and saved our souls. We're not special because we hear great sermons or we sing great songs, but we're special because we do what you ask us to do. And so 
this morning, I ask for a big movement, a commitment to not only being passionate, but having vision to see the people that we're supposed to host in this house over the next 5, 10, 15, 25 years. The foundation is laid this weekend with five new salvations, but I think it's the first fruits of many, many more that are about to come in this place. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you. We'll expect you, and we'll respond in obedience. May you work with me first. Amen.